In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. On, on Christmas, we celebrate how the eternal Son of God became true man. Every year on Christmas morning, we hear and consider what St. John writes in the prologue to his gospel, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. If during Christmas we consider how God became true man during the Epiphany season, we celebrate how Jesus made himself known as true God. Epiphany means manifestation. It does no good for God to become true man if he just hides out as a man and nobody finds out who he truly is. This is why Jesus made himself known. As St. John continues on Christmas morning, and we beheld his glory, the glory of the only begotten Son of the Father, full of grace and truth. Last week we learned of the beginning of signs that Jesus did, by which Jesus manifested his glory and proved who he truly was. By turning water into wine at a wedding feast in the town of Cana, Jesus did what only God can do. And his disciples believed in him. Jesus did many more things, of course, by healing the sick, giving sight to the blind, casting out demons, calming storms, healing lepers, and raising the dead, Jesus proved he was God, and his disciples believed in him. Today, on the last, well, Sunday was the last festival of the Epiphany season, our gospel lesson records an event that took place at the end of Jesus' three-year ministry, at the very end of his manifesting Himself, He manifested his glory as the eternal Son of God, not by doing various things that only God can do, by which he addressed this need or that. No, he manifested his glory by revealing all at once the true appearance of his person. He was transfigured before Peter, James, and John. His face shone as the sun, and his clothing became as white as the light. If it had not already been crystal clear by the many, many divine works he had done, it was surely very clear now. Jesus is God. Every miracle before this was like peeking through the curtains a little bit here and there. But the transfiguration of Jesus was like ripping the curtains off the window entirely. When St. John says that they beheld his glory as of the only begotten of the Father, he surely had this event in mind. St. Peter, who is also there, is even more explicit when he refers to this event as we just heard in his second epistle, he was an eyewitness of Jesus' majesty. The question then must be asked, what was the point of all the other miracles? If Jesus could just do this the whole time, why delay? It's like if the last point of a game were worth a thousand points, why bother playing for, the, for the, all the other points? This last epiphany or manifestation that we hear about today was really all that was ever needed for Jesus to prove who he is. Why didn't Jesus just start with this? Well, this question assumes, of course, that proving who he is was the most important thing that Jesus came to do. But God did not become man to prove he exists. God does that every day. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. His deeds are vile. He pre pretends to have intellectual objections to God's existence, but he's lying. He's a fool. Fools lie to themselves without even knowing it. He may well have real intellectual objections, 
But he's a fool to take them seriously, and he's a greater fool if he expects God to. Fools think that by pretending God's creation is insufficient to prove his existence, well then, they, therefore they owe no thanks to God for all that they enjoy, and that God must also therefore fail to judge. The fool hides in the dark so that his sins might not be exposed, but the light will shine. Fools will be judged by the very light they ignored, the light that will judge both the foolish and the wise alike is a light much brighter than the light of creation. It is the uncreated light of God himself. Once hidden and concealed in the person of God's eternal Son, Jesus Christ, but now revealed, this light is now hidden in the message of truth committed to his church on earth. This same light will appear again to judge the living and the dead. The fool says in his heart, he says it in his heart, that there is no God. That's what the fool does. Oh, think of what God might call those who actually say it out loud. There is no God. It is enjoyable to learn from the research of Christian and otherwise honest scientists who by careful study and analysis prove such things as intelligent design, and demonstrate evidence of the biblical record of creation and the flood. Any Christian smart enough to follow the research really should. God is honored by their efforts and by our interest. But if there's any risk in such endeavors as these that valiantly tear down the pseudo-scientific towers of human arrogance by disproving evolution and such, it is this, that they run the risk of taking such foolishness too seriously. Do not answer a fool according to his folly, lest you also be like him, says Solomon in Proverbs 26. It can be counterproductive to argue with a fool. Many so-called skeptics are just hiding behind pretend intellect and pride. In reality, they're just tar babies who want to pull anyone they can into an endless and fruitless argument. And yet... Solomon immediately follows with this next proverb. Answer a fool according to his folly, lest he be wise in his own eyes. God would not have us be wise in our own eyes. He came to reveal wisdom to fools, not by answering our questions, but by teaching us first what questions to ask, and then making very clear what the answer is. He came to answer foolish objections and doubts, not by giving them the time of day and taking them seriously. No, he's not on trial. We are. He did not come to prove his existence. No, he dispelled doubt by revealing wisdom and many careful displays of his own authority and power. He came to manifest his glory to man, but he did not manifest his glory all at once. He showed his glory in many individual works of love and patience. And when he displayed the unveiled glory of his person on the Mount of Transfiguration, he did not do so for the masses. He didn't even do so for all his disciples. He chose only three. There is no one-size-fits-all epiphany of God's majesty. Well, there is. But we don't want that. 
It is unmitigated, unfiltered, unmediated glory that would destroy us all and that we would run away from. If Jesus had come to dash away and end all objections, all doubts, all false opinions, in one singular demonstration of proof, his glory would have melted the earth and sinners would be utterly dismayed. But no, he hid his glory. He revealed it in small proofs tucked so sweetly into many acts of divine kindness and compassion. He did all these as signs which directed those who stood amazed to what was more important and more convincing. Throughout his ministry of many small proofs, Jesus taught and directed everyone he encountered to the word of God, which he came to fulfill, and to the ministry of his church to preach that word, to preach the gospel to you until the end of time. No, God didn't become man to prove that he exists. He became man in order to rescue man from sin, death, and eternal hell. He became man in order to do as a man what man failed to do, would not do, and never thought to do. He lived a holy life of submission to sinful parents and inadequate teachers. He lived a holy life of service to poor rebels who stood under God's judgment. He endured every injustice and patiently waited on his father. He fulfilled the perfectly holy life required of us, and he gave this perfectly holy life of obedience and trust and purity as a sacrifice for all human sin. He died in the place of all sinners. He welcomed into himself all the wrath of God revealed against man. He made himself the sole object of divine anger, burying in his own body and soul all judgment on the cross. He did this to save us from hell and grant us favor and peace with God instead. This is why God became man. It is essential that we acknowledge his divinity. Only God can so fully pay this price. Only God's death would be valuable enough to atone for our sins. And yet it is essential that we know him as a man because the price God paid is the price that we owed. As St. Paul writes to Timothy, there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself a ransom for all to be testified in due time. God did not become a man to prove that he exists. Creation proves enough. But the God who became man surely did prove his divinity. He proved his divinity in such a way that revealed his goodwill at the same time. He never used his divine power to terrify or threaten, only to help. The manner in which Jesus revealed his glory bit by bit, from blessing a wedding in Cana to raising Jairus' daughter from the dead and Lazarus too, all of this demonstrated his clear intent to reveal mercy instead of wrath. As Jesus himself said, this is where St. Paul got the words, the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Jesus did not want his disciples to discover his Godhead in grand proofs and wonders alone, but in grand proofs and wonders that also confirmed his eternal desire to save us. He's not a mere man of goodwill. 
He is our holy God who made us, who knows our sin, our weaknesses. He knows our doubts and he hates our selfishness. That's not how he made us to be. And yet he comes in selfless love to serve us and redeem us. Believing that God made all things is not enough to know him. Being one step wiser than a fool does not make you worship your worship sufficient. Those who claim that they worship God in their own way, by fishing or hiking or enjoying the morning sunrise with some measure of appreciation for God's artistic beauty, those who claim that by beholding God's majesty in creation should consider that creation itself, as magnificent as it is, is nothing more than yet another veil by which God hides his glory and protects you from himself. There is much more glory behind the beauty of creation. Much more. The more this veil is lifted, the more apparent it becomes that the God behind it is a consuming fire. Every storm, every illness, every disaster, and finally death itself is proof of this. Proof that man needs to know more about God's disposition toward him if he is ever to love and trust in God. And that's why, after many and various proofs of his divinity, Jesus made known in acts of mercy and kindness, he chose Peter, James, and John to reveal the majesty of his person as the Son of God. Lord, it is good for us to be here, Peter said. If you wish, let us make here three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. See how quickly Peter tried to make it all about what he could do for God. See how quickly he thought that he could turn worshiping God into just simply gazing and appreciating his glory he had, as though God just lives for our compliments and amazement. Well, I suppose this is a little better than claiming that one can worship God by enjoying creation, but only a little. We do not worship God by basking in his glory as he shines in brightness, telling him how awesome he is. No, we worship God by relying on his mercy, by finding his glory where he establishes peace on earth and goodwill toward men. As the Christmas angels sang, here is his glory. This is what we bask in. We worship God by knowing his son as the one who was crucified for us to make full satisfaction for all our sins and to reconcile us to the Father. God doesn't tell us to gaze at his beauty and creation or in any supernatural vision. He tells us to listen. He tells us to hold his word sacred and gladly hear and learn it. St. Luke tells us what conversation Jesus was having when Moses and Elijah appeared with them on the holy mountain. It was the same conversation we hear throughout the Old Testament, the same conversation that makes us holy too. They spoke of his departure, of his imminent death, burial, and his resurrection and ascension. But the Father interrupted Peter while he was still speaking and foolishly offering his service, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and suddenly a voice came out of the clouds saying, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. 
listen to him. Listen to Jesus. Hear what he says through his apostles. Ponder not the majesty of God and what you may be granted to see or feel or experience. Oh, how wonderful it is to experience good things. But ponder rather the truth and grace revealed in what God says to you. Especially when your experiences contradict what you have learned from Holy Scripture. Because it is what you need. What Holy Scripture teaches, and it is more sure what God reveals there. More than you need to know that Jesus is God, you need to know why God became one of us. Why and for what purpose he revealed his glory when he did. And this is all summarized in what Jesus told these three disciples as they walk down the mountain, tell the vision to no one until the Son of Man is risen from the dead. Tell the vision to no one until the greatest act of glory is established and complete. Then you can tell everyone that I'm God. Then it will mean the world. See how often he told people to tell no one as he reveals bits and pieces of proof of his divinity. And he tells them all to keep his secret, hide it, wait for it. What you need will be revealed not in sights and wonders or testimonials. What you need is what the whole world needs. What you need will be revealed in the good news that is more sure than any epiphany. It is more sure because God says it is. That same prophetic word confirmed is just as easily and preferably translated. As Peter writes, we have something more sure than the excellent vision, more sure than what Peter saw, something more sturdy and worth relying on, which you do well to take heed as a light that shines in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your heart. You see, therefore, the purpose of Scripture is to work faith in your heart toward God so that you know his goodwill toward you. Knowing this first, that no prophecy of Scripture is of any private interpretation. For prophecy never came by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. In order to learn wisdom from God's word, we must know it is God's word. We must know it as clear. Its purpose is clear, and its words are clear. Fools say in their heart, scoffers say it out loud. And what many fools may say about what God reveals in creation, as though that doesn't prove his existence, well, similar fools and scoffers will sneer at the word of God as it is written for us to hear and believe, as though it does not reveal his mercy. But they're wrong. And you do well to take heed to that light which has shown you God's glory, where God hides his glory, where he bears all of your sin where he puts a veil over that majesty that would terrify you 
in order to reveal the greatest glory we can ever see, the glory of God's mercy and truth, the glory of God's goodwill towards sinners, the glory of our Savior, who seeks to help us, restore us, comfort us, and encourage us until we see him face to face. In the meantime, we remain disciples of his holy word. We look for the face of his anointed who shines upon us. And when we rise from our shame and penitence, when we rise from sin and regret, we go where we can expect to look up and see Jesus only. In Jesus' name, amen. The peace of Christ that passes all understanding shall guard your hearts and minds in Christ into eternal life. Amen.